Welcome to Working Sober, the podcast that empowers high achievers like yourself to take control of their drinking habits and maximize their career success. I'm your host, Melissa. Working Sober is here to inspire and support you on your journey. So sit back, relax, and let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Working Sober. I have another phenomenal guest episode for you today. Today, I'm speaking with Jill McKay. She runs Inquisitive Coaching, helping professional, successful midlife women to break free from the hold of alcohol and start living a life on their own terms, a life they don't want to escape from. Her three-month Sober Joy program gives clients the tools to replenish their nervous system so they can make different choices without endless willpower, cravings, or doubts. Through a mixture of coaching and somatic work, alcohol becomes less important and eventually irrelevant in their lives. With a background in neuroscience, Jill is also a mental health first aider and a best-selling author of Stuck, Brain Smart Insights for Coaches. She's currently writing her second book, Freedom, Design the Alcohol-Free Life of Your Dreams, where she shares her her own journey to happily ditching the booze for good and provides a framework for readers to use when they are ready to do the same. It was so nice talking with Jill. We had a fantastic conversation that I know you're going to find super valuable. She's full of all the wisdom and all the insights. So let's get in to today's episode with Jill McKay. So welcome Jill to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm I'm equally excited. It's really a delight to be talking to you, Melissa. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, I am just so much looking forward. I look forward to having this on my calendar this week. It was just such a nice, fun addition to the week. So let's get into your story. So for my listeners who don't know you, can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing now, what your, you know, your work, who you work with, and just a bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I'm um, a mum of three young adult children. I live in West London, come from the north of England, but I've been in the south of England for more of my life than the north of England. So um, I, I'm, I'm a southerner, if you like, these days. So I've all my working life, I've worked in the area of learning and development. And I was really lucky. I kind of landed, if you like, in that sphere. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So all my working life, I've worked, in, I've helped people and enabled people, facilitated people to to learn, to grow, to develop, to be the best they can be. And over the last two years, for uh, obvious reasons, um, I moved into sobriety coaching. So I know we're going to be talking about that today. And it's almost as if in all my decades of working, because it really is decades, Melissa, I'm a lot older than you, in all my decades of working, everything's kind of come together to really inform this path, not just from my my own perspective of being really aligned with sobriety coaching, but from a um, my, my own development, everything I've learned along the way is fueling what I now do um, to help uh, my clients. And my clients are, I work predominantly with midlife professional successful women. Um, most of my clients, I mean, I'm, I'm not targeting this specifically, but most of them I would say are sandwich generation, if that makes sense. So they're in that, that sandwich of maybe um, older children who are doing exams and going through all of that thrilling distress of trying to get into university or the apprenticeships or whatever and you know the whole teenage years and then also dealing with elderly parents elderly folks elderly in-laws um that's really been a pattern that's emerged that's certainly that was certainly where i escalated my own drinking during that period of time so predominantly it's women I, my messaging is um, towards women, but I have had a, a, a number of male clients as well, and I love working with men too. 
Yeah, that's great. My messaging as well is predominantly towards women. And recently I've been getting a lot of inquiries from men. So it's been interesting. Have you noticed any difference? Just side note, working with men versus women? Yeah, it's very, the, 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 yeah it's really interesting. I think, I think you know, we're, we're into the, 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 the possibility of generalizations here, aren't we? You know, yeah. that being, you know women are from, men are from Mars and women are from Venus sort of thing. And, you know, the, the big generalization that's so commonly understood in inverted commas is that women are emotionally intelligent than men men aren't well you know hey let's put a big rocket up that you know i think that men who want to come for coaching are as emotionally intelligent as they need to be <laughs> you know they they're really embracing the coaching and i like yourself you know do a, a discovery call uh, you know to really assess whether people are ready you know i i i'm not comfortable taking on a client whose whose wife has poked them so hard and said you've got to go for this you've got to do this you know because people have got to hold their own motivation so so my sense with with the guys is that they're they're as joyous as uh, to work with as, as the ladies as well um my client my male clients have been a little bit more direct in some ways i remember one of my clients i um without breaching any confidentiality at all we we had early morning sessions it's just the way it worked out with his work and on week three totally off agenda and totally unexpected he said i must talk to you about sober sex <laughs> oh my gosh. so sober sober intimacy will come yeah. up as part of what we talk in the flow the natural flow of the conversation with female clients as well but i kind of thought blooming heck it's seven in the morning <laughs> so, Catch you off guard. absolutely but i i, I really I, I will continue to message towards women i think you know to a degree one can always argue you know i'm a woman and that's my my avatar I, i've had that, that experience myself i've never been in the body of a man or the life of a man again i'm in generalization terms here i've got to be careful um, but what a joy it's been to work with my male clients so far. Absolutely. Yeah. Every day is a school day for all of us, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> Every single day. So you mentioned a bit about your own story there, how you kind of yeah. felt sandwiched between taking care of older parents and having kids about to leave the nest. Is that kind of what it was? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it absolutely was. So I think the thing is, um, you know, I, I think I think I'm double your age. My goodness. me. <laughs> so I have drunk for decades and I am the classic, um, you know, in the 1990s, boy, I could drink anybody under the table. It was always wine, always wine. And, occasional spirit and occasional beer but you know it really was when i started work in the late 1980s and i worked in the high-tech sector you know and i was in, initially i was in marketing before i moved into um, training and development i was initially in, in marketing and sales and but we went out every single lunchtime. It was a rite of passage. It was expected, you know, whether you had any client deal that you'd, you'd sold to celebrate or not, you went out. It was, I was really, really quite shocked, but enthralled and, and enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed it. So we went out for two hour lunches very regularly every night to the pub after work and Fridays boy that was a humdinger you know always and it was expected and also I think because I was working in the tech sector and um, women were in the minority I it was it was a I, I really played the game I enjoyed it I'm not not lying about that but I really played the game in order to fit in it's uh you know it sort of it, it started it all really started there now I'm not saying that I didn't drink before that you know I'd been to university and yeah that was a good fun experience Manchester University and virtually you could 
find us somewhere anywhere in Manchester that's open all night and it's a very music oriented club oriented city it was fantastic had an amazing time in fact in the third year I had to go and introduce myself to my personal tutor because I hadn't really been attending the university very much and had such an amazing time but then you know sort of go through the sort of patterns of life um, and you know stories escalate they change they ebb they flow I had three children uh, my mother had Parkinson's for uh, for 13 years before she died so and she was still living in the north and so that was a lot of yeah I had that sort of lifestyle of going up the motorway every other weekend while managing a big corporate job and um and having children as well so and that was really really tough and it was during that period that my drinking started to escalate in so much that it became less social and more solo and i think that's i didn't realize it at the time you know we're none of us are, uh you know we, intellectually we do know it so i knew it but i didn't own it and I think that, that's a big thing with me is that knowledge versus accountability and, and owning. And I was I was in that pattern for years and years, Melissa. And then it really escalated for me when um, two, two things happened. Um, my father-in-law died and my mother-in-law was very disabled. And it was absolutely instigated by me. It was a really, they lived in Devon and it was a real um, quick, we had to make a decision because she was disabled. And it was going to be a decision of does she live in a home or does she come to our home and so we put our house in the market to uh, to bring her into our home so we could find someone that was suitable for her and we got care at home from her i actually despite the accent originate from scotland and it's a very scottish thing to have three generation families my um my grandmother lived with us so it was something i was very yeah. useful i would do it all over again but maybe with some different boundaries. So, I mean, she's gone now, very sadly. It was a very challenging eight years. I loved her dearly. We gave, it was the right thing to do. She gave us a lot, we gave her a lot, but there were three people in my marriage. You know, she was the, I had the kids going through the exams and all sorts of stuff. Um, Margaret was with her, with us, and it was really, really challenging um, for many reasons. Um, and, and the second thing that happened is that my daughter was diagnosed with OCD, which again is incredibly manageable. It was, it was, you know, but there was me. This is a classic example of sandwich, isn't it? Driving up the motorway to see my own mum. My dad was trying to care for her, and you know he was aging as well. Lost one, but one of my in-laws, another in-law came to visit with us. My child was having issues. You know, and the list went on and the Sauvignon Blanc shares went up because Jill was really partaking. <laughs> yeah. I know that it's super common when especially women who are mothers and nurturers are taking care of everyone else around them. Yeah. They struggle to take care of themselves and it almost becomes this sort of martyrdom where yeah. they believe they, they feel entitled to have a drink or they believe that, well, I deserve this. Was there any of that going on for you? Oh, 100%. And that whole martyrdom, it's real. And it's again, you know, you try and sort of push that down, you know, because I knew that, you know, I, I was Mrs. Heroine, you know, I was the lifesaver. I'm a, and I, I still, you know labels are challenging aren't they but i still think my nature is to rescue you know and that and as a coach that's something that's really interesting i can separate that in my professional life you know i'm very very conscious of detachment very conscious of that you know but 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 you know for myself it was you know i i didn't recognize the language then you know my whole receiving energy was like 
gone you know it was like wouldn't ask for help it was all about me i was superwoman i was doing it and it was only just a little glass of wine wasn't it you know i was always giving myself permission but by the way it was never only just a little glass of wine started off as a large glass of wine and went on and escalated to many more large glasses of wine as well but i think you're right i think it's it's classic and so much is written and has been written for years irrespective of the drinking about women in that sort of children parent midlife or, or prior to that and on top of that the whole menopause piece as well um i'm really glad that there's an awful lot out there and there's discussion around all of that now and sobriety and drinking has been part of that equation but for decades we've talked about the woman and the can a woman have it all and you know i think we've almost tried to live up to that um that message that marketing message of yes we can have it all but within that can have it all there's going to be some fallout and the fallout is often our health and i talk about that both physically and mentally as well yeah absolutely what were some of the you know maybe the physical symptoms you had while you were drinking or some of the mental symptoms as well like what did that kind of look like for you when you were yeah. drinking yeah absolutely so so it, it, it it's i mean i could talk about this because it's gone it's gone on for decades so physically i put on the weight so you know yeah I really 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 ballooned and it's I think so when I stopped drinking I dropped around four stone and pandemic put a pay to a little bit of that <laughs> but that's interesting some of that was some of that loss of weight was deliberate it was part of my healing and part of my getting well again um but uh, you know some of it was natural just from the the, the, the giving up the drink and giving up the, the sugar um so I ballooned in weight and then as as a consequence of that and many other things things my self-esteem really dropped so at the time I remember I was doing a lot of um I left the corporate world in 2002 when my daughter my last child was born and set up my own training business and at that stage I was working with a major client in the Midlands and had a was running a, a sort of leadership training academy um and I remember particularly uh, it was very interesting somebody said to me at the time you're so lovely jill you're like a real earth mother everybody really loves you you remind me of dawn french now and this is really interesting isn't it how you take a piece of feedback with that where the intention is was a genuine compliment of you're so lovely you're a giver thank you for doing this wonderful training yada yada but of course what did i take away from that you know mm. i took away from the fact that i was like the vicar of dibley you know and, and actually characteristics of the vicar and dibley were are, are really really lovely and dawn french is an absolutely beautiful lady so the weight gain was a big thing and it affected my self-esteem so i would show up in the world particularly in my training and when i was on my feet in front of clients delivering leadership training neuroscience training whatever i was doing i would show up as this earth mother you know that comment that that participant gave me you know has kind of it i i allowed myself to wear that label and it was a way for me to excuse if you like my my weight gain mm -hmm. and give myself permission to be oh it's fine you know it's really fine i knew it was affecting my health it's fine but um you know i, I I'm, I'm the earth mother so that everybody likes me so that's going to be all right um of course from a physical perspective as well other other symptoms were just disgusting mornings you know ab absolutely horrible mornings but you it becomes normal you mm. know that daily hangover it becomes just a you know we get used to living in this dull thud of fogginess in the morning and then we get used to pushing through it so you know i would be if i was at a training course for instance 
um and i had a little bottle of wine in my bag you know in my room yeah we'd probably be in the bar if it was a residential course the night before as well um you know i would i would get i sometimes even get up and go for a run or a walk you know but i would bang the pills down i would bang the, the coffee down and another thing that um I, I wrote about this the other day actually i always had bruises on my legs and i never really knew what it was for or rather i'd never really admitted you know i would always get up in the night because sleep was always broken and go and take some paracetamols or whatever was available there and i'd bang my leg on my chest of drawers as i went past i mean you know it, what and i just when i look back at that that makes me very sad in some ways because it was a you know, I, I, this was visible on my body, uh, and it's it, it really was a, a real mark of, of self disrespect in a way. You know, and yet I allowed it to happen. I just I looked at them, I, I acknowledged them, I guess, but I tried to push it to the background, even more stuff to numb out. And from a mental perspective, I I felt, and it's really interesting this whole this fully functioning terminology. I felt I was fully functioning and the clients kept coming back. I was winning new business. I was good at pitching, you know, all of all of that sort of stuff. Great with all with all the networks. Um, but I felt rubbish underneath. I really, really did. Uh, but I was every time that I was doing something good for others, whether that was with work or whether it was sorting out my mother-in-law's carer, um, you know, somebody who hadn't turned up on a shift, for instance, or you know, dealing with something at the school or, you know, because of course I give we always give a busy person more to do. I was on the parent teacher association. I was, you know, I'm a big joiner and I did everything. And I think I was doing everything in inverted commas to escape my reality. And by the way, my reality was nothing drastic. I mean, yes, my mum was dying or had, you know, had Parkinson's. Yes, my mother-in-law was disabled. Yes, my child had OCD. But to a degree, and you know, these are quite extreme, but to a degree, this is the uh, part of navigating the up and ups and downs of life. Nobody has a perfect life, whatever the perfect life is, you know, but I numbed everything out. And part of the numbing, not just with was the drinking, but it was also the busyness as well. Yeah. And then the drinking affected, I, I truly believe that I could have been an even better trainer, an even better earth mother you know and, and i don't want to say a better mother because i think there's a lot of judgment personal judgment within that but i could have showed up differently if i had if i hadn't been so busy and hadn't been hadn't been drinking yeah and i know a lot of people especially um there's people who comment on a lot of my tiktok videos saying things like i wish that i quit sooner i wish that i could have been there more for my kids have you felt any of that sense of regret or or how are you working through that or yeah it's really interesting so and and I, actually I've, I've written a whole module on that in my own sobriety program sober joy around that whole acceptance piece and of course you look at the 12 steps yeah i mean i i aa wasn't for me for but it's wonderful for so many people there's a lot around amends and remorse isn't there and mm. i think it's right that we put that on a table but you know my background in neuroscience as well there's there's quite a lot of research around regrets you know and and there's also an awful lot as you will know about toxic positivity so right. we can we can come out with this bland statement of you know life there should be no more no regrets you know it's all about learning you know mm. i have to say that has been my attitude you know that that do i wish i had shown up for things in a different way you know what if i had if i hadn't have had this experience i wouldn't be the me i am today so 
I missed out on certain aspects, for instance, of my children's life because I was traveling to Europe you know because I was looking after EMEA and Asia Pack for you know a, a big learning and development organization so it isn't just about the drinking it's also you know about the the the, the life choices I made around my work as well um do so no I'm, I'm going to say a no to that that there there aren't any regrets because I'm I'm um grateful for where I am now um and also we can't do anything about it right you know, the past is in the past it's a really interesting topic this isn't it the whole area you know do i wish this do i wish that you know i'm glad that i've been dawn french and by the way anybody who's this dawn ever listens to this i love you <laughs> you know i'm using it as a metaphor from vicar of dibley if you like yeah. i'm glad i've had that because it's helped me to reframe my body now and who I am now sitting within that body. So there is some gratitude. What I am eternally grateful for is that I, um, that when my daughter's uh, situation escalated, that I had quit the booze by then. So I really was able to show up for her. Uh, my other daughter's got some challenging digestive situations. And not, I mean, it's digestive. This is again, the normal ups and downs of life. My son lost a friend to suicide. I don't think we can call that normal, but you know, I've been yeah. there for these young adult experiences. And what's also really interesting is the feedback I'm getting from my own children. You know, I don't sit there and ask for feedback, but you know, in the general flow of life and conversation about how proud they are of me. My youngest daughter doesn't drink. She's now in year two doing drama and film at a university and, you know, quite a, a, a drinky crowd that she's in and she's chosen not to drink. She's also on medication for her, her, her disorder, but, but, you know, it's quite, it's interesting. It's really, really interesting. And it's spelled out a different conversation with my, my children. I mean, my other, my, my elder two do, but not as much, they, they believe they don't drink as much as they would had we not had these conversations in the family subsequent to my giving it up. I'm also very grateful that I was, um, I quit when my mother-in-law was still alive so that we were able to really talk through you know very openly and honestly you know why I felt I escalated because I didn't want ever for her to feel that she had come into this house and caused us a problem because she hadn't and I would do it again in a heartbeat um I think she was quite shocked with the openness of the conversation but I also felt it was really important that she felt that there was no blame because there, there really wasn't so you know there's there's gratitude and not remorse if that make if that mm -hmm. makes sense it's a really challenging question that because it's it's yeah. always requires a binary answer doesn't it yeah. yeah but i've also been exploring this concept of duality of emotions yeah we don't just have one emotion at a time sometimes there can be multiple emotions and maybe if you can imagine your emotions as being in a car, there's always an emotion that's driving the car, but there's so many others packed in there. Right. And yeah. I believe that it can be helpful to, instead of skipping over the regret and saying, oh, you shouldn't regret that. If that's true, if that feels true for you, being able to feel that regret yeah. and have that be validated for you, but also at the same time, be determined from this day forward to work towards making a change or to feel that gratitude like yeah. having the duality of emotion can be a super helpful way to explore that i think yeah i agree with that and and the the, the module i referred to earlier around um I mean, it happens to be called acceptance you know we, we talk very much i talk with my clients around um forgiveness and compassion 
you know and this can be hard work because it's all wrapped up in these you know the as you say the duality or the the multiplex i don't know if that's a word but you know the multitude of of emotions around shame and guilt and those are those are really tough emotions to to allow yourself to feel yet alone voice and land so absolutely i like your metaphor of, of driving the car that there, there are there are always um, a multitude of emotions at bay um but emotions like i believe like shame and guilt are you know they're often in the driving seat and you know they're often coming from the passenger seat reaching over and grabbing the wheel <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and it's important. It's really important, I believe, to acknowledge those. So there are things that I was ashamed, I am ashamed of or have been, no, my language change, have been ashamed of. Um, and then back to the question of regret. Do I regret you know, shouting at my mother-in-law? You know, do I regret not being around and being in bed fast asleep when something bad happened with my daughter? You know, if we're being binary about it, yes, of course I do. Of course I do. Do I regret the lessons in life I have had to take me to today? No, I don't. If I can, but that's a holistic response. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It definitely does. Um, so how did you then decide to quit? Could you could you walk me through that decision that you made? Did you yeah. have it's so interesting. I, I mean, you'll have probably, like myself, read you know the vast array of quit lit books and you mm. know podcasts and everything that is available, which are enormously, enormously helpful. So I kind of, I think I mentioned this before about the knowledge versus the owning. You know, mm. knowing something versus really taking accountability and owning your your actions. So I didn't have what all the quit lit books refer to as a rock bottom moment. You know, there was nothing like I didn't end up in bed with somebody else or end up in hospital or get pulled over by the police. You know, or anything like that. There was nothing. There was no single event um that led me to it i just had a, an erosion of of little events i guess i can i could probably name some of them but actually it was just a series of you know probably over months really when i when i look back at it that just culminated in me just feeling really really disgusted back to that word shame and disgusted with myself and what had happened was um We'd had a, a particularly challenging week with my mother-in-law's carers. Um, I mean, you know, let's not go on that tangent, but the care sector, it's a challenging area to work in and the wonderful ladies were coming to help. But there was a somebody had missed their bus and didn't turn up and blah, blah, blah. And I had some work to do, blah, 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 blah. And what, somebody came in as a substitute, absolutely fab lady, young lady, Katie. And it was five o'clock so it was my mother-in-law's last appointment of the day last care appointment of the day and you know I, I had to get used to all of these people coming into my kitchen to get her a cup of tea you know blah 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 and that is a transition in itself I don't know it just take me time to adjust to that as an introvert, the introvert. Yeah, it, it, it was challenging but it was what we signed yeah. up for you know right. it, it yeah. was, and they were all university universally there were wonderful individuals very stretched and very stressed and you know expected to be able to sort of fly on some magic broomstick from one appointment to another you know and, and everything to be on time it just doesn't work that way but I remember this day Katie coming into the kitchen to get Margaret a cup of tea Margaret was my, my, my mother-in-law and she just literally sniffed the air and I had was drinking Sauvignon Blanc from my Gary Barlow mug <laughs> We can laugh about this now. So truly, 
I would. <laughs> My American <laughs> listeners, Don French and Gary Barlow, they're actors yeah. in English actors, yeah. Yeah, so Gary Barlow is the lead singer of Take That. So oh, Take sorry, that yes. Yeah. Why don't I, I'm confusing him with somebody from EastEnders. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I'm not an EastEnders fan. Yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Isn't it funny? You know, we make an assumption that people know these people, but yeah. I'm, I'm a massive take that fan. Uh, yeah. You know, sort of housewife groupies. It's very much my age group. Yeah. <laughs> That, that love these guys so well, somebody had bought me my, my friend Jane who I go to the Gary, Barry Garlow but Gary Barlow concerts with it bought me this mud and you know you know I, I view myself as a relatively intelligent person you know as if pouring wine into a mug Gary Barlow or not would mask the fact that it was wine Katie sniffed the air and in that moment I just felt disgusted disgusting you know and I you know in my usual sunny way I winged it in terms of the conversation she didn't say anything but I remember she was a girl in her kind of late 20s who was a carer who was training to be a nurse she'd gone back to college to train to be a nurse and I just thought who on earth am I showing myself up showing up in the world as you know it was really interesting you know after that moment and that was the moment that evening I said to my husband I'm going to quit I am. I just don't know how to do it. And but I'm going to give myself a fortnight. Now I don't know where this arbitrary, you know, time frame of a fortnight came from. So two weeks. And I immersed myself. And he was wonderful. You know, he did share with me then that he was incredibly supportive and had, you know, not wanted to say anything. He had said some things over the years, but you know, but he was stepping on eggshells around me. And you know, again, that's not the colour of a great relationship. It, you know, it was a poor guy, bless him. And then he said he'd support me in any way that he would, including quitting himself for a period. And in that fortnight, I absolutely immersed myself in every single piece of literature, website, podcast, whatever was available. I don't know whether I was looking for a get out clause <laughs> or not, but it was, I mean, it's kind of the way that I do things I, in learning and development and in my neuroscience work. It's all about research. And you know about this. With your, oh, yeah. Your, your I did the exact same thing. Yeah. I <laughs> like a month. Yeah. It's great, though, isn't it? Because you know, I, I wanted to really understand people's perspectives. I wanted to know where the current science was. I wanted to know, you know, and of course, it was all pointing towards the same stuff. You know, I, I, was I really looking for the, the French articles to say that a glass of red wine a day is, you know, beneficial to our health? But I immersed myself in, in all the stuff that was available then. We're talking six years ago now. And there's a lot more available now, such as your, your own uh, podcast and, and other resources. And um I pretty quickly made the decision. I didn't even reach the fortnight. And I was thinking that was something that I just, again, I, I, I managed to, I moved into almost subliminally subconsciously from the knowledge to the owning. And, and that really, really mattered to me. So on Tuesday, the 13th of March, uh, 2017, which was, I, I think I beat my 14 days by, <laughs> by a few days. Um, I said to my husband, that's it that's it and then four days later um we found <laughs> i found a bottle of cloudy bay which is a beautiful bottle of wine in the wine because we had a wine fridge you know in the wine fridge and i thought 
how beautiful i didn't have my swan song but i didn't have my swan song you know there wasn't one massive night it was really interesting it was almost as if i was slowly slowly getting into that that space of ownership arming myself with various tools and i didn't go through any particular program i took some of the advice from the books about you know the, the usual very fundamental i won't say basic because that implies it's not useful but very fundamental um advice around planning you know and, and and really being committed to why you are doing this and some some really sensible you know stuff to get me going plus i had um I guess a lot of experience in self-coaching over the years, you know, oh, the irony, you know, all those years of drinking, because I'd been qualified in coaching and and, and NLP and I'm an NLP master practitioner and, and I'd been coaching others for years, plus my neuroscience tools, because I spent a number of years researching in the neuroscience area and, and I had a business teaching other coaches to use neuroscience in their work. I, I used some of the tools there, but it was actually I learned a lot about myself through the process because so much of it for me was about research, was about you know understanding the current scientific view of alcohol and keeping myself really informed, looking at statistics. Um, and but the thing that I will always say, and it's different for everyone, I get this, but knowing why. I wanted to do it was it was all about alignment and values for me and that really really mattered you know that it was it was about stepping into the next phase of my life healthy and authentic and real and really open to my vulnerabilities but really happy being a brilliant mum, being truly present, being a really good daughter-in-law, you know, a great daughter. My mum had gone by then, but my dad was still alive, you know, and all of that stuff. And um, I'm actually just really wanting to. Mm. You know, it's it's um, in a way, I'd love to be able to say I followed the XYZ program or I did the, you know, I, I did join a community, um, which was hugely helpful. So I joined this Lucy Rockers community, the Soberistas community, which I believe then was one of the only ones available six years ago. And it's, it was wonderful. I was, I was a lurker for many, many years, yeah. but it was available. So, I, I, you know, I didn't feel isolated at all. I was enormously helped by my husband, my wonderful husband, who it was the March, like I stopped drinking and we were going on holiday, we had a lovely family holiday organized in the July. And he said to me, well, I'll just stop. I'll stop. And, but, but when we go on holiday, because we, we were rooting through Singapore and going to stay with friends. And he said, I, I will drink with Mike. And I said, that's great. That gives me a great start. We talked to my mother-in-law and said, right. She drank red wine. I was a white wine girl. She drank red wine and whiskey. And I have no doubt, because she was in a lot of pain within her wheelchair, that the whiskey took the edge off her pain. So we just said, you know, our preference is that you just drink the whiskey. <laughs> she would drink whiskey at dinner. <laughs> she's like okay she was on board she was on board with it and it, and yeah. it really mattered she was on board uh, with it as well and my elder my lad was at university my elder daughter was about to go to university and again we just talked that when you're home you know if you're going to drink it's just you know beer but we're not having wine so i didn't take all the all the alcohol out of the house i know for some people that really matters my husband collects gin and occasionally drinks it he's not a big drinker um and i'm as proud of our gin collection as he is because 
boy, gin's a marketing thing, you know, I mean, the design, the bottles, they're, they're, they're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. We have a, I'm a member of a networking group and we have a joke because every time I come into this networking group, I take a couple of bottles of empty gin bottles because one of the ladies puts lights in them and creates beautiful decorations out, out, out of them. And it's kind of like, hey, the sober coach is walking in with more gin bottles. <laughs> oh, but it, it, you know, that strategy works for some people, I think, and, and they need to do that. But um, we, we still had white wine in the house, but not Sauvignon Blanc not Sauvignon Blanc so that was that was the one thing and you know what's interesting Melissa I'm going off at a tangent so please please stop me no, right. one of the groups I run which is called the Grey Area Drinking Space which came out of a, a, a Christmas um, program I ran to help to, a mindful drinking program um, uh, we I, it came out just in a conversation from that I realized and I've still been as social as ever and pandemic put paid to that a little bit and um, we still have people over to dinner but I realized I do not believe I have picked up a bottle of wine and poured one of my friends a glass of wine in six years and that's that's quite interesting isn't it yeah. so you know I, you know I've picked up a bottle of wine and poured it into the bourguignon so I have cooked with wine I don't know if you do that but I, the, the alcohol cooks off yeah. so you know I, I I have done that but I don't it's was really interesting it came out with one of the conversations in the group I, I, and I think I think that must that holds true now have I actually physically picked up a bottle of wine and poured it for a friend so and then do I need to you know they're all capable of pouring it themselves <laughs> right yeah these are all kind of agreements that you can make with yourself on a sobriety yeah. journey I think to figure out what works best for you our journeys are actually quite similar in the sense of our kind of quote unquote program, unique program that we made ourselves for quitting because I was very similar. Like I didn't join AA. There was no specific community. I kind of dabbled in a few of yeah. them online. And I really used my background in consumer psychology, which is behavior change 101 to help me discover how to actually change this habit because behavior change as we know is so much more than just changing your behavior there's so much <laughs> underneath all of that and um so that's that's interesting that we both had a very similar experience doing the research mine was 30 days yours was 14 days so, yeah yeah it is, it is interesting and you know and well done you know but it, isn't it interesting that we we both kind of went that research route and and, and i think this is this really matters for your listeners as well. One size does not fit all, you know, and I've, I've, in any business program or program for health wellness program, you know, I think we have to really find something that lands really congruently with ourselves, you know, and it may be AA, it may very well be that for some people that 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 very, very structured approach for others, it might be a community, it might be, you know, a different type of community, a different discussion, or it might be like you and me, we did it on our own with us with supportive partners and friends ar around us. And I know that doesn't exist for everyone. You know, it's it's um, I, I'm working with a lady at the moment whose husband is well, frankly, she's he's poking her. You know, he's saying, come on, you're, you're, you're OK now. You've done it for six weeks. You're OK now. And it's, it's shining a light on her boundaries, but it's also shining a light on their relationship as well. Very much shining a light on him and his own drinking. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and you mentioned when you quit, you felt much more in alignment 
where yeah. you wanted to be. So how did that play out with regards to your career? Because we know you've had a career change. Yeah. So, you know, so so I still think I'm like Dawn French, you know, because I still am a, an earth mother, albeit several stone lighter. And, you know, and I, and I want to play out, you know, I want to show up in the world as, you know, I am a nurturer, you know, perhaps less of a rescuer and more of a, a, a nurturer now. So, so six years ago, I, I quit, and it was really interesting. The, the, the first, I carried on working with my training clients and training coaches in the in the neuroscience. I have a business partner, Alistair, in that in that business as well, and we we kind of knew Alistair and I that we were coming not towards the end, but we were kind of at a pivot point. We needed to make some investment. The website's really old. You know, we haven't made the investment yet. <laughs> you know, he was coming into his sixties and was looking at non-exec positions we were both at that kind of pivot point anyway what do we want to do and I'd started to coach more so myself I'd started to coach but just work more with coaching clients and but not in sobriety you know it was all around clarity confidence I, I coached a lot of leadership positions in in corporates and but my own personal healing if you like at the beginning of my journey what really helped me was I did two things <laughs> it's a bit of a cliche really I wrote a book which the one that I sent you the other day. Yes. So I wrote a book and I started running. And what was wonderful about the run, let's just get this in perspective about the running, you know, we're jogging. Yeah. <laughs> Where I live in West London, I joined the local running club alongside a group of other amazing beginners who've become firm friends. And I call them my sober friends, not because they are sober necessarily, but because I meet them in the day. So I joined a daytime running club. It was absolutely wonderful because one of the joys of having my own business, of course, is that my time is mine to, 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 to organize and manage. So that was something I was able to do. And I discovered so much about myself. The writing, I used to love English at school. So many, I mean, decades and decades ago, but I went the science route. My parents were both doctors. They wanted me to be a doctor. I'd had a heart issue when I was a child. I had an operation in Great Ormond Street. And they had, there was a fund to send me to Houston. And we didn't, it was wonderful. I got sent, I was, was fifth of its type to be done in, in Great Ormond Street. So there was a lot of pressure on me to become a doctor when I was a child. But I knew, and it's partly to do with the detachment thing. You know, I get very attached to people. Um, it wasn't for me, but I went the maths and science route rather than English. I'd loved the writing and it kind of had gone to a degree when I went more of that, that scientific route in my education. So writing the book, I, I do say it was part of my healing. It was never about I'm going to write a book to become famous or it's my business card. I wanted to write a book about what I knew about, yes, to help coaches, and it's done quite well, the book, but that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was for me so that I could have some structured discipline around and, and time for me. And I've learned so much about myself through the process of writing. One, I've channeled my inner introvert. So I, I am naturally, you mentioned before that you were, were introverted. I, I believe I'm a natural extrovert, but actually, again, labels, um, I'm pretty ambivert you know and I'm very comfortable in my own skin very comfortable the writing has helped that so I'm so grateful for finding that joy of writing and I know later I will write novels and you know there's another yeah. book coming and you know I know that's what I'm going I just love it um and the running was all about health but I who knew and I've run a couple of half marathons until I got a knee injury and pushed it um who knew that 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 would happen and and but it was the joy of doing different things that really helped me um you know not everybody's gonna write a book or run that's fine it's you know I've got a friend who 
quit the booze who's just discovered an amazing love of crochet it's absolutely fantastic and she started doing that because it was something to do with her hands but she's become a local legend because she um does these as you've seen the pillar box covers you know the oh, pillar yeah. boxes yeah she it's absolutely wonderful she does these and it's a new 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 thing she started but i really do um for the first i carried on coaching to go back to your question for um and and writing in parallels so i kind of i wound down the business button a little bit and uh while i was writing my book and then i had an epiphany one day that hang on a moment i love the coaching i really love the coaching i also love the group work and how happy am i at the moment you know why don't i just combine everything i know and everything that i've done so that i can help other people experience the ha this happiness this unexpected happiness and joy so that's when a couple of years ago i decided right the time is right to to look at sobriety coaching and there were a few more sobriety coaches popping up so i spoke to a number of people and i decided research-based and all, all the rest of it that i wanted to do some study so i joined a lady in america a lady called Jolene Park, who oh. I think she coined the phrase "grey area drinking." She did, yes. Yeah, and uh, she amazingly, Australian. I thought she was. Is she no, Australian? she's American. She, oh, okay. She's East Coast, and mm -hmm. um, so I joined her grey area drinking mm -hmm. coach group, and I still consider her to be my mentor. I feel really blessed to have uh, been trained by and by by um, Jolene, but also to have um, met the cohort that I work with and then many other coaches from her cohort. And I think for me, one of the reasons is, um, and I really needed to think about it because I do tend to be a bit of an overjoiner. You know, I, I, I like I, I like new things and everything. But like with coaching, when I first qualified in coaching, I think it's really important to know your line. And by that, I mean, when I would no longer be of service to a client. So, you know, at its absolute simplest, coaching predominantly looks forward, therapy often looks backwards. And at what point I would, my, you know, we do a bit of both, obviously, therapists yeah. look forward for goals and, and look into the future. We have to look backwards at experiences in coaching, of course we do. But I think it's very important to know the line, your line, that when it might be more appropriate to advise a client that, you know, they, they, they would do better or be better served by a different type of intervention um, and I had twice in my coaching in, in my leadership coaching career had that conversation and referred people on to, to counsellor or therapist and I think it was the same I, I wanted to be able to very clear for myself around that rather than just relying on my intuition around that with the the whole drinking area around when I, I couldn't work with a client because it possibly required um, a medical intervention or more psychotherapeutic intervention and it is a wavy line you know it's very wavy. <laughs> that actually happened a week ago two weeks ago I met with a woman who wanted to work together yeah and unfortunately it was just not a good fit for what she was going through and what she was struggling with yeah. so I had to refer her to another professional but yes. It is a very thin line. It is, isn't it? It is. And especially if, you know, and again, generalizations, but I think, you know, many coaches are born from that mold of really being rewarded by helping people. You know, they are natural nurturers, sometimes rescuers, but they are, you know, there's natural nurturers. So, you know, we, we get a sense that we could help somebody, but we can't help them fully. And I think it's important to recognize it, but it is a thin line, isn't it? So, so for, for me, I, I want, I invested in myself through that process and I am so glad that I did. 
um, for, for many, many, many reasons. And then I launched my own program. Yes. Uh, let's yeah. talk about that quickly. So let's talk about your program. And if you would like to share a bit about your book as well, I think that would be very interesting for the listeners to hear about. Well, thank you. That, that's really generous of you. So so my program is entitled Sober Joy. And it's a, I, I used to say 12-week program, but I'm very conscious of that number 12, you know, the 12 yes. steps. So it's a yeah. three-month program. Now, I know a lot of people have three-month programs and a lot of the business coaches roll their eyes and go, oh, not another three-month program. But there is a reason for the three months. And the reason for the three months is that we know that provided we do some good stuff, and I'll come back to this in a second, um, with ourselves, with our bodies, three months is really a great period of time to be able to normalize, maybe that's too strong a word, your brain chemistry, to bring your brain chemistry back into alignment. Because when we drink, even if we don't drink a hell of a lot, your brain chemistry is out of whack. You know, you are, you're, you're, we look particularly through at the, the, the four um, neurotransmitters of dopamine, GABA, acetylcholine and serotonin and they can all be up and down for all sorts of reasons and they affect each other you know neither they're all sort of uh, they're not mutually exclusive either and it's not just those it's others so provided we do what I, I call them the five nature's medicines of I hope I can reel them off the five nutrition so provided we, we that's number one we feed ourselves well through the process in the early stages hydration sleep well we all know that could be all over the place in the early days but provided we put together a great sleep routine and give ourselves the best chance um exercise can be as simple as walking and breath work you know and if anybody had said breath work to me six years ago i'd have rolled my eyes and thought how woo woo you know is that but boy it's game changer so provided we look at those five nature's medicines and keep working through those ourselves three months is really a um a good period of time to start to feel better just that's that that simple so my sober joy program is 12 weeks worth of themes if you like so it's content based but the con the conversation can go anywhere so i'm running a group program running the same program as i do one-to-one -one. so if it's one-to-one -one client they get the same and it's a series of recorded um, modules and then the week later we come and we discuss and there are, there's a workbook for each we discuss the answer to the question or we discuss whatever is relevant to them then and really the content is there as food for thought it's there as catalysts for thinking so I've used the because I have a neuroscience background I've used the acronym of BRAIN B-R-A-I-N twice so that's five letters twice 10 weeks so there's an introduction week and then there's a, a one in the middle of integration week so the the b the r the a the i the n starts for stands for in the first round beliefs rituals awareness which is around strengths identity and nourishment then there's an integration week and then we go the loop again and it's all around boundaries people pleasing as well including mm -hmm. that um resilience um, the A is aware is um, acceptance. That's the forgiveness week I talked about before. Um, and then there's inspiration and next steps. That's what it, it's, it, they're loosely that they're talked about. And each week as well, I um, bring in some somatic resources. So this is where I started this work with Jolene Park, but I subsequently trained as a somatic coach where I'm in, ongoing because so much, as you know, Melissa, we talked about this when we first met with this is about getting out of your head and into your body and really coming in tune with where an emotion's coming up, where, where you're feeling something, um, how you can really get in the moment. And it's about trusting your body and trusting your in intuition. So one could argue that classic coaching is, 
almost cognitive you know it's about it's reflective coaching it's and it's marvelous because it gets us to really think and it gets us to ground our thoughts and but this is a what i do is a combination of thoughts and feelings and really teaching people at, at its at its most simple how to really ground and center themselves so that they're giving themselves the best chance to be able to to learn to trust themselves again and when we can get into that space of trust then we know that the possibilities are really open to us and then the, there's a curiosity element built into the the other content so that's what sober joy is about and i'm writing a book around that now um the working title is, is is freedom and i can't remember the tagline because i've got about seven of them on the go at the moment um and it's broadly based around those the the, the two loops around the brain with some 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 stories i'm going to do some research around that as well so that i, I bring some original work into that but the book i wrote prior that you asked very kindly asked about the one that i described as my healing book is nothing to do with sobriety i mentioned my sobriety within that and i mentioned my um the love of writing within the book but the book was was as i say the purpose of the book was actually for me to heal and the book itself is around uh, it, it's in two parts the first part is a bit of brain 101 so you know so i'm not a neuroscientist i did not go to university and discuss you know i am a very well informed nerd <laughs> Well, I've been through a number of uh, courses, but I haven't done a degree in, in neuroscience. I've never, I can hold my hand up and say I've never cut up a rat's brain. <laughs> so, yeah. but I, my, my business partner, Alistair, and I, we, we, we set up our business to almost be a broker between the, the weighty academia that was, and it's, you know, really wonderful academia, but challenging to interpret in the business world. And then what we call neuro nonsense, well, we actually call it neuro something else, but we'll say neuro nonsense on the podcast, you know, where a magazine might, might, sort of print an article that has been you know an experiment with with seven rats and all of a sudden there's the cure for dementia you know so we, we we're, we're kind of we wanted to find material that could be interpreted in a very interesting way and useful to other trainers coaches people working in the development field so the, the first part of the of that is brain 101 if you like and then the second part of the book is six coaching stories so and they were from clients who came to see me for various presenting issues none of them were sobriety um various presenting issues and how we delved a little bit into the world of neuroscience to help them through our coaching so they've been renamed they're genuine stories with their gracious permission to, to share their presenting issue and uh, so I'm, I introduced the reader to various pieces of neuroscience research that that may be helpful and none of this is about teaching content so none of it is you go into a client and say right you're an angry person I'm going to teach to you about your amygdala it's yeah. really not about that. <laughs> you know it's not it's about helping clients become curious about what's going on in their brain and their body and how that might be affecting their thoughts their behaviors and their actions yeah, I think the book, because I have read some of it, because I got it last week, um, I think it's a great middle ground between the very dense academic research and kind of magazine, quippy yeah. headline, you know, oversimplification type pieces. It's yeah. a great place for people to find out some more information in a very accessible way. With yeah. my background in consumer psychology, that's super important, right? Yeah. We don't want to put people off with, you know, jargon and really heavy intense detail so i've been reading it it's really good and i think even though no it's not necessarily about sobriety specifically there's so much that you can pull from there yeah. even though the coaching might not be the coaching um vignettes that you've kind of used in the book are not specifically about sobriety the great thing about 
hearing someone else get coached is you can still always take something away from that, whether that's your unique situation or not, because it's all, it roots back to the same exact thing all of the time, right? Because we all have a human brain and the human brain wants the same three things to seek pleasure, avoid pain, and to stay in the familiar. Yeah. And I think that you can find a way to see yourself in those stories, even if it's not specifically what you're struggling with. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I, I, um, I appreciate the, the compliment about the book, but also I, I agree with you so wholeheartedly, you know, around the, the, the three premises of human life, you know, and, and being a human being in, in this world and, and how we can also learn from other people's stories. I mean, I, I know you'll, you'll agree with me here, Melissa, as a coach, you know, every day is a school day for us as well. I learn every time I have a client conversation, you know, from, from things that I can take on for myself, you know, it's, it's absolutely in the coaching scenario a room of equals and um, a room of mutual learning mm. and before we close out I would love to know what would you say to somebody who's looking to reinvent their career after quitting drinking what would your advice be my advice would be trust yourself and it's really interesting that you raise this as a question because two of my clients at the moment in my group program they're at this cusp of recognizing oh hell I don't like what I do yeah. Uh, <laughs> so they're at this I can relate. It's really interesting, isn't it? And they're they've described it as shaky and scary, and it can be, but it's also liberating and aligned. So the easy thing to do, and one of the ladies actually voices would actually to go back to drinking because and just stay in the world that she's doing, because she recognized she didn't want to stay in the world that she's in because she doesn't like it. So she'd need the booze to, to numb her out. So my my advice would be go for it. And if you go if you're a researcher like me and Melissa, give yourself a limited time to research. Just go for it. Because you know, it's something I'd say to my kids. It's a very hackneyed phrase, but what's the worst that can happen? You know, that it doesn't work out the way you wanted, but the best that can happen is it does, or even better, it works out better than you wanted or differently than you wanted. And that takes you to you in, into another avenue. Keep curious, keep learning, and anything's possible these days. In the digital world that we work in, anything's possible. So just follow your gut, your instinct, because you now trust your gut and your instinct and enjoy every moment. Yeah, uh, that's that's lovely advice. I agree 100% with all of that. So before we end, if you could just tell listeners where to find you, if they want to learn more about your work or connect with you or read some of more some more of what you're up to, where can they find you? Absolutely. So I'm I, I post on LinkedIn and Instagram every day. I uh, although Melissa hasn't advised me that maybe TikTok could work for me. <laughs> When we first met, I was like in awe of like, your 20,000 or more followers on TikTok. That's absolutely fantastic. So I write um, on um, uh, LinkedIn every day and on Instagram. Um, and my, my website is jillmackay.com. So that's very easy. And uh, I've got a, a growing number of blogs on there. Um, but um, yeah, please do connect. I'm always really happy to, to chat and have a conversation. You know, I, I only very occasionally do a selling post. And that's only when my coach nudges me and I kind of try and delete it. You know, so for me, it's all about sharing and connecting and, and meeting new people. Uh, yes, thanks so much, Jill. And I will link all of those um, social media links and a link to your book in the Yay, show notes for anyone who wants to check it out. 
other than that, thank you so much for being such an amazing guest. It was great to have this conversation. I'm sure we're going to have many more conversations in the future. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, I'm very grateful. I, I always enjoy um, talking to you, Melissa. I'm really glad I came across you and we, we found each other. And uh, and I think it's also really interesting. You know, we're both in the same business. And yet, to me, the more sober coaches, the better. You know, exactly. it's, it's an area of abundance and, and collaboration as far as I'm concerned. So I'm, I'm so glad and I, I look forward to many more conversations. Appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Working Sober. I hope that you found it informative and inspiring. Make sure you join our community over on Substack where we share resources, stories, and support for those navigating this transformational journey. To subscribe, simply visit workingsober.substack.com or head to the link in the show notes and enter your email address. It's completely free and you'll receive our latest newsletter directly in your inbox. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It helps us reach more people who can benefit from our message. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, keep working sober and pursuing your dreams.